Welcome to the Hall Render Real Estate Podcast. My name is Addison Bradford and I'm an attorney with Hall Render, which is the nation's largest healthcare focused law firm in the country. You're about to listen to a recent webinar that Hall Render conducted about understanding the process and issues in real estate compliance actions, a conversation with Assistant U.S. Attorney Justin Olson. I was joined in the webinar with my colleague Lauren Rodriguez, who is an attorney at Hall Render as well within our litigation section. This podcast does not constitute legal advice for any of the parties, but is intended to give parties greater insight into real estate compliance issues from the DOJ's perspective. If you have any questions about this webinar or this podcast, feel free to email me at abradford at hallrender.com. If you're interested in more materials uh, related to today's topic, Hall Render puts out a real estate newsletter and has additional podcasts which are available on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this Hall Render webinar, Understanding the Process and Issues in Real Estate Compliance Actions, a conversation with Assistant U.S. Attorney Justin Olson. I'm Addison Bradford with Hall Render, and we are the nation's largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Joining me today is my colleague, Lauren Rodriguez, who will be my co-moderator for today's discussion with Justin, who serves as his office's civil healthcare fraud coordinator. The goal of today's webinar is intended to give you a greater insight into the process by which healthcare compliance actions involving real estate issues are processed and litigated, as well as discuss some of the common issues that arise in these compliance actions. Also, if you're interested in the content of today's webinar, Hall Webinar, Hall Render publishes a monthly newsletter and podcast regarding healthcare real estate issues, which includes many compliance matters. Please feel free to uh, email me directly uh, after this webinar at abradford at hallrender.com if you would like to be added to that newsletter or like a link to that podcast. Uh, the podcast is also available on iTunes. Justin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, Justin. To start off, could you please tell us about your role as an AUSA, specifically with regards to the healthcare issues? Sure. Uh, I'm an assistant U.S. attorney, and in that in that position, uh, I serve in the civil division. So first and foremost, I'm a litigator on behalf of the uh, United States in the Southern District of Indiana. Our office uh, has designated someone to uh, handle or be the primary point of contact for healthcare fraud-related matters. Um, and I, I, I fulfill that role. Uh, in that role, I work alongside um, our support staff. We have an amazing support staff at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We have a healthcare auditor, um, and um, healthcare paralegal, and then obviously other AUSAs to assist as necessary. But maybe most importantly, for purpose of this conversation, I also work alongside and with the criminal healthcare fraud coordinator. Uh, we have completely separate and independent roles as a civil. Uh, AUSA, I cannot comment on any uh, criminal matter or nor do I have any discretion or uh, uh, say on the decisions that our offices makes on criminal matters, but we do like to work together and coordinate to the extent that is necessary. So healthcare fraud uh, is, is a broad term, but practically speaking for our office's purposes, that is primarily uh, enforcement of the uh, Federal False Claims Act, uh, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It, you know, in a nutshell, deals with any uh, claim presented to the government that was uh, done with the uh, kn knowing that it was fraudulent, and uh, so we, we take that very seriously. And uh, False Claims Act cases can can involve healthcare, they can involve other government programs, but to the extent that they involve federal dollars for healthcare programs. 
that's what I like to work on. You mentioned that there's different people within your office that are handling um, civil claims and criminal claims. Are other offices around the country uh, similarly structured that way? Yes. Uh, every office should have a, a civil health care fraud coordinator and a criminal health care fraud coordinator. Uh, some AUSAs wear multiple hats, but that's usually um, how the Division of Labor's set up. And I should say, I should have said this right when I started, <laughs> all my comments today are made in my personal capacity and not as the civil health care fraud coordinator. Um, nothing that I say is, should be uh, binding or, 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 does, or does it represent necessarily what the DOJ's policy is or, or what it's going to do in a particular matter. Uh, uh, so with that said, uh, I can talk about my experience and, and uh, my personal views, but just uh, so we're clear on that front. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate your expertise um, and your knowledge of the process here. And uh, we want to start with some of the some questions about the process, uh, beginning with kind of the how something gets to you. How to tell us a little bit about the process by which a tip or complaint from CMS or OIG reaches your desk? So if we get a complaint directly from uh, HHS, uh, it's going to come to us usually through one of the uh, special agents or, or, or case agents, or um, and that usually comes in the form of a phone call. Uh, or it could come in the form of an email, say, hey, we want to come to your office and we want to chat about uh, something that we have um, that you think we think you might be interested in. They'll then, by that time, if, if it's coming from them, they'll have already done a preliminary investigation, but they want to get our, our input pretty early on because they want to know if what they have uh, has legs to it and if it makes sense to continue to invest government resources. And what are the process, I mean, obviously a lot of the actions you see are self-disclosures. Um, how, how does a, a um, health system or a hospital or other provider looking to self-disclose um, maybe a possible violation of any kickback or Stark? How do they reach you? Sure. There's uh, Self-disclosure can be uh, to our office. As you mentioned, it can also be directly to HHS. To the extent that it comes to our office, uh, the initial contact can be can be very informal. Um, you can call me. Uh, you can call um, uh, our civil chief, uh, and you can just talk through uh, the problem. At that point, we'll we'll say thank you, and we'll probably ask for a written disclosure uh, of any of any self-reporting uh, any self-report you'd like to make. Um, but the initial point of contact can be can be as simple as an email or a phone call. Uh, that that written self disclosure is is very important. It uh, you you really want to make sure you're you're thorough and and exhaustive in in what you put in that uh, that self disclosure. Any anything that you think would be helpful, uh, and we we can talk about this more um, in this hour. But uh, the point of self disclosure is self disclosure, uh, not not and. and by self-disclosure, I mean full disclosure. So um, thoroughness is is, uh, is is the point. And we, um, as Lori mentioned at the outset of this webinar, we have a few questions um, to gauge your and your um, feedback on some of the issues we'll be talking about. And we have our first poll question that's listed should appear on the right side of your screen that um, asks you about your um, understanding of self-disclosure actions. Um, so if you care to, the, uh, all the responses are anonymous and are viewable by even us here on the other side of the screen. 
um, but we just love to hear back from you and get your feedback on these issues throughout the webinar. All right, Justin, uh, moving on from self-disclosures, uh, we know, so as a litigator with the, with the Hall Render um, Litigation Practice Group, we know that sometimes cases come through whistleblowers. Right. Can you please describe the process for determining whether that case that's brought by the whistleblower actually has some merit to it? Yeah. So these whistleblower actions, or what's also referred to as key TAM actions, it's probably the most common form, the most common way that actions come, come across my desk. These actions are initiated by the whistleblower, also called a relator under the statute, and this person will file a complaint under seal in, in federal court, and they will allege the, the content of the fraud and, and how it violates the False Claims Act. They'll also have to file uh, or, or serve on us a, a disclosure statement, pretty much the, the same type of disclosure statement I referenced in the context of self-disclosure. And then they have to serve that on our office in the U.S. Attorney General. When that comes across our desk, we, uh, the first thing we want to do is schedule an interview with the whistleblower or the relator and just confirm that we fully understand what uh, this person is disclosing and the nature of the allegations they're making, and then also essentially pick up where they left off to make a good faith uh, disclosure and, and a False Claims Act complaint. They have to have some idea of, of the nature of the fraud, and, and so we wanna know what they know because once they file that self-disclosure and uh, complaint. Uh, we, we instruct relators to stop investigating. Uh, the case is now in the hands of the federal government. At that point, we will uh, do our due diligence to try to confirm first all the allegations in the complaint and in the self-disclosure statement, make sure that it's accurate and what they're reporting is, is true. And then we will continue the investigation. And the point of the investigation is just to satisfy all the elements of of the False Claims Act violation. Uh, not only is there, there has to be some kind of misrepresentation or material omission, there has to be actual an actual claim presented, and there has to be uh, federal dollars at issue uh, under a healthcare program, and then there also has to be, was probably often the most uh, difficult uh, prong to satisfy the, the uh, scienter requirement. Um, getting at, you have a material false statement, you have a claim, you have federal dollars at issue, but if there's no intent to defraud, then technically it's just a mistake, and it's it's not fraud. And that's um, and as as I'm sure you know, as as uh, folks who are very well versed in the federal rules of civil procedure, as as uh, real estate attorneys, uh, you have to plead fraud with particularity under Rule of Civil Procedure Nine, and that's hard to do. And you have to know the who, what, when, why, why of the fraud. And so that's, that ends up being probably the area where our investigation is very helpful for relators who hope to proceed to have the case fully litigated, but it also becomes often difficult to, to prove. So you mentioned in the beginning that it, it, they file it under seal. Yes. Um, so at, our audience is not just made up of attorneys. We have attorneys that are transactional attorneys. We also have people that work in the health systems. Our, the goal of this is to explain a little bit in detail. I know as a litigator that sometimes the process is a little bit slower and mm -hmm. I'm comfortable with that. Some people aren't. Yes. Can you um, describe or can you give us a typical length of time from when 
the case comes to you from a whistleblower until it's unsealed. Right. It can be, sometimes they never get unsealed. Sometimes okay. we investigate and there's nothing to the complaint. We decline to intervene. We do our best to inform the relator of why we decline to intervene. And ideally they would agree with us and voluntarily dismiss their complaint. And, and the uh, target of the complaint would never know that they were the subject of a KETAM lawsuit. Those can wrap up as soon as six months, if, if not, if not um, a shorter amount of time. Some cases can go on for several years. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in some cases that have gone on, uh, are still unsealed, and they've gone on for uh, four to five years. And that might sound um, odd. Uh, our, our jurisdiction is pretty lenient on the time. The amount of motions for extension of time that we file in some of these very complicated cases. Other jurisdictions are not as patient. Other jurisdictions, the judges want to see these cases move forward more quickly. So in our district, in the Southern District of Indiana, to answer your question, six months to five years, we don't want it to go that long, but just some of them are just extremely complicated and they just take a long time to really investigate. Other jurisdictions, you got one shot after six months, maybe a year, they're saying, all right, I'm denying any motions for extension. We're unsealing this case. Government, if you don't have your ducks in a row, too bad. Get your act together. This case is going forward. So thankfully, our judges are, are uh, we have great judges in our district. And uh, uh, But at the same time, you know, that's there's 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 benefits, I can see, for, for getting these cases moving along faster. Uh, yeah. It uh, Evidence never gets better uh, the more stale it becomes. And so... I, I can appreciate uh, judges who want to see these cases move quickly. So one of the things we've noticed as we track Stark and any kickback related uh, federal compliance actions, specifically those related to real estate, sometimes we see, I want to say frequent flyers, people who bring multiple uh, whistleblower claims, um, whether they be successful or not. Do you guys keep track of frequent flyers and does that impact your decision as to whether to bring a case? Yes, we, uh, the frequent flyers are, are known uh, in our in our district, and I should say we also compare notes with the Northern District of Indiana. Um, sometimes we'll get relators who filed cases in the Northern District, and they've been rebuffed, and they file very similar cases in our district, hoping to get another bite at the apple. Uh, at the same time, though, we take every case very seriously, and just because uh, someone is a frequent flyer, and we know that they are. They're very interested in bringing these types of claims. Doesn't mean that they don't have something to say and they don't have concerns that they they want addressed. So while it's noted and we, we appreciate that, it, it does not affect at the end of the day um, our assessment of the merits of the case. So when you first started out, you described the process of civil and criminal being separate where you work. Um, so with the AKS, the anti-kickback statute. Can you describe to us how these cases are distributed and the timing around them? How do we know that it's going to be a criminal matter? When do you execute that against? Sure. It's There's no understanding the line between civil and criminal. Again, I just want to say I, I'm, I'm never involved as a civil AUSA and no, from my experience, no civil AUSA should be and, and our justice manual uh, prohibits it um, from, from making a determination on, on criminal. It, it can it can it depends on the evidence all at the end of the day okay if, in a key tam context it comes to us as a civil matter and as we depending on the extent of the investigation and what's called for if we need to for example subpoena emails uh, from the target or conduct some depositions if in the course of those depositions uh, something extremely nefarious that's material to the fraud uh, comes to light 
and we have not just a matter, you know, a reckless uh, disregard for the falsity of the claim, but there's a willful intentionality to the fraud, we would probably just make a referral to criminal and then they would take it from there. We wouldn't tell them one way or another to treat it as criminal. Um, they would make that determination on their own. Uh, I'll also say that sometimes it happens in reverse. Sometimes there's a criminal investigation going on into uh, an alleged fraud scheme and I'm brought in just to observe whether it's a, a witness interview or, or a strategic planning meeting among the case agents. And six months later, the criminal investigation wraps up. There's nothing, nothing comes of it. Uh, but there's been enough evidence collected that can be civilly prosecuted. And so it then comes to my desk and I would take over the investigation. As with any criminal case, uh, there are certain uh, things that civil can't see. We're not privy to any grand jury uh, testimony or anything that's been produced uh, in response to a grand jury subpoena. We have to get a special order to see that. Uh, but there are we, we can share resources in that regard. So, so bottom line, uh, it's the interplay between the two changes based on the nature of the evidence that comes in during the course of the investigation. And you said that it comes to your desk. Do you have a lot of autonomy to decide, oh, I believe that this is going to be a civil action that I want to pursue, or do you have to go up the ranks? How does that work? I have to get sign-off from uh, the civil uh, chief okay. uh, for any case that I open. But there's there's a lot of trust in, in our office in particular. Um, other offices, depending on how big they are, uh, you know, Southern District of New York or Eastern District of Pennsylvania, these very large offices, there's a f more formality to the decision to open a civil case or close a civil case. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, uh, my supervisor uh, trusts me and, and will often defer to, to um, uh, the calls that I want to make. And we have our next poll question, which uh, leads into our next topic. Uh, and something you, um, you indicated uh, previously with regards to referrals from the civil side to the criminal side. What types of factors influence the decision to refer a case um, to the criminal division? Is it based off intent? What are some of the factors that play into that? Yeah. So I just I know that the question on the poll is, uh, what are the factors for filing criminal charges? Um, I, I, I can't answer that question, but I can answer the referral question. For me, a referral to criminal involves two things. One, uh, patient harm is, is a big factor um, for, our, for our criminal AUSAs. They... Um, that, that's a big factor. The other factor is just kind of the high-handedness of, of the violation, the, the intentionality of the action. Um, when, when something moves from, from a, a, you know, a reckless disregard, putting your head in the sand, over to an, a clear-eyed intentionality, that, that might prompt me to, to ask for criminal to take a look. So let's say that there is a, um, both the criminal and the civil side have decided that the um, allegations or the alleged violation of anti-kickback are worth filing a lawsuit. Um, how much coordination and what coordination there is there uh, between the entities in filing an action or filing actions? Excuse me. Right. So, to, to to maybe change your question a little bit and just continue with the key tam context. The key tams are, are pretty much presumed to stay in the in the civil context. Um, it's it's fairly unusual for, for criminal to be involved in any, any key TAM investigation um, that, that um, 
goes before a decision for us to decline to intervene. In a case that's been referred to us by HHS directly or that comes through another investigative agency, the coordination among criminal and civil in our office, um, I can only speak to our office, is the coordination is, is very robust. We will uh, try to uh, attend the same meetings. We'll, uh, to the extent that we're talking to case agents, we'd like to talk to them together. Um, again, reach in our own lane as criminal and civil uh, AUSAs where we're assessing it for different uh, reasons and, and uh, from different perspectives. I have no, no uh, ultimate say in what the criminal counterpart does and, and they don't ultimately determine what the civil does. But to the extent that we're just not trying to duplicate efforts with regards to information that we can legally share with one another, uh, we don't, we don't want to duplicate efforts. And we find that this not only benefits us, it also makes the jobs of our case agents easier. Um, they don't have to explain things multiple times when they pitch a case to criminal, but also to civil. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the, the public's better served, we're more efficient. Um, we, we've, we're able to wrap up matters more, more quickly because uh, we're able to get to the heart of the matter uh, at the same time. That said, there are certain circumstances where civil will usually have to be put on hold. The case goes criminal. We essentially kind of hit the pause button, let them finish what they're doing. Once that wraps up, then civil can jump back in. Or, or the opposite. Uh, based on how the evidence comes in from the case agents and what they've seen, criminal might say, hey, I, there's nothing, I don't see anything that's worth a uh, criminal's time here. So, so go forth and, and litigate Justin. And if if you get concerned about, if, if the facts change or the investigation takes a different turn, come back and see me, but they might check out. So in civil actions, you'll see a lot. I know when the DOJ posts things um, on their website, through emails, I get alerts. There are multiple parties involved in these actions. Um, and sometimes we have a party, one provider or one entity providing a benefit to another entity. What? How do you determine which entities are the ones that you go after? Sometimes it's only one entity, sometimes it's multiple. Right. Yeah, and if I could just add on to that, and so where you have potentially like a real estate leasing arrangement where you have a, a, a physician and you have a hospital entity, how are the decision made as to which party to um, file the civil action against? Right. Well, when it comes time to file an action, uh, understand that uh, our office, to feel comfortable filing in good faith, there has to have been an investigation at least a couple years in the making before we get to that filing decision. And that includes like the whistleblower or the other entities that come to you? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, your self-disclosure, whistleblower, key TAM, or a referral directly from the agency. And by the time of, of filing, the decision on what entities to name in the case caption when we file the civil complaint, really boils down to what's what's the nature of the evidence that we have at the time. Okay. That's different from who we're investigating at the front end. At the front end, I think it's safe to say, say every person who's named on the lease, every person involved is gonna be uh, a subject of investigation. But as the case develops, as the evidence becomes clear, uh, you'll, you'll see uh, certain entities likely drop out just because either there's not enough evidence to support uh, a claim, there's not enough witnesses available to, to that will 
you know, be on call as the litigation develops to, to support the claim. And, and that will be, will be a factor. Uh, the, the other factor in is, is resources. Um, we are, uh, the federal government cannot pursue every single possible claim. And as I'm sure some of your clients well know, um, DOJ declines to intervene in most KETAM uh, cases. But that does not mean that most KETAM cases are frivolous or, or meritless. There are a lot of, the public is well served by uh, helpful relators who see a case to conclusion even without the di direct assistance of the Department of Justice during the actual litigation. So it is a matter of priority, priority for the current Attorney General, the priority for the U.S. Attorney in our office, uh, and also the needs of the communities in which these cases are brought. So all those factors play a part in who is ultimately named uh, on the case caption when it comes time to, to bring uh, a lawsuit. And I, and I would also say uh, most of our cases do settle before we have to file a complaint. And so naturally, if you've already settled, you're not gonna be named on the complaint. Based on your experience with, with settlements, um, is there much variation in settlements based off of how the action started? So are settlements typically, from what you've seen, lower when they arise out of self-disclosure? Like if somebody self-discloses and a self-disclosures a start <laughs> self-discloses a start violation in a lease, is that typically the settlement amount lower than what you see if, for instance, it um, arises from either uh, DOJ or a KETAM action? It, it should be lower, and I, I'd refer um, our listeners to. Title Four of our Justice Manual, which talks about the self-disclosure framework and the uh, cooperation credit that we give, those those guidelines are, are very clear about um, the expectation is that that they will be the penalties and the damages will be um, reduced. That said, um, if there is truly, even if there's no fraud, even if they self-disclose and there's no fraud, um, but there was an actual mistake, there was you know. Uh, claims were paid that shouldn't have been paid, the, the disclosing party would be expected to, to repay what they shouldn't have received. In if there is fraud and they self-disclose it, uh, it, it should, should be, and we would expect it to be less than double damages. Obviously, you can get up to triple damages uh, for fraud under the False Claims Act. Um, many cases settle uh, for um, they can settle for triples. I've seen that. Uh, they settle for, for doubles. Um, but we, we would expect that a self-disclosure uh, would result in settlement um, less than that. Um, so I kind of want to narrow the focus on real estate questions. Uh, how many Stark and AKS cases do you handle on a regular basis that deal with real estate? Sure. I would say at our, our office, at any given time, we have between, oh five to ten cases. Um, it can be less than that. It can be more than that at any given time. We're a smaller, we're a medium-sized district, um, and there's ebbs and flows to it. So it's, um, but but I'd, I'd, I think five to ten is probably a good, good rough estimate. And do you know how many are Stark only, or how many, you know, that you have civil and criminal AKS, or is it just a mix at all times? I think it's a good it's a good mix. It's really hard to put numbers on it. Um, I don't have a great sense of what criminals' caseload is like right now. Um, but on the civil side, I mean, most most um, 
key TAMs and, and referrals that come to us that are real estate related are probably going to involve both Stark and Andy Kickback just because yeah. when they first come to us, the the facts are not as well developed. And so okay. um, the assumption is they're, they're there's probably going to be elements of, of both of those statutes at play here. And the picture becomes clear as the investigation continues. And how many do you handle personally? Personally? Um, or do you work in teams? How does that work? Yeah, we, we work in... I'll, I'll be touching every healthcare case that's on a civil side in our office. Oh, okay. Uh, but I may not be the lead uh, we are we are a family friendly office, so <laughs> I'm uh, expecting my th- my third kid. So I will be on, on leave for a little bit for that, and so someone else will momentarily step in. and And we've had people, you know, so it's it's uh, I'll be aware of at least every case, and my involvement will vary based on a variety of factors. Yeah, and in these cases, specifically um, real estate leases um, and other real estate arrangements, what are the most common issues you, s- you see in these from a compliance perspective? So real estate cases, the, the most common issue um, will be fair market value. Uh, it's, it's, if you have a situation where someone is leasing property uh, and it involves healthcare entities and there's uh, there's no lease in place or no agreement written down. Uh, that that's a pretty clear violation. I, I, don't, I, I would hope that no no entity would would be so so high handed in that. So there's going to be some lease. There's going to be some um, arrangement that on its face probably looks legitimate. And so the issue becomes: uh, is is that document um, is that reflecting you know, the ordinary course of business for entities that um, are engaging in these transactions, and so that that ultimately comes down to to fair market value. And, and what's is there something baked into this transaction that's not uh, that's being artificially uh, artificially affected based on the interest in referrals or or trying to um, gain an advantage from a relationship that the federal statutes don't allow. Yeah, so when you're doing a fair market analysis, a fair market value analysis of a lease, what parts of the lease are you typically looking at? Obviously, the base rent would be one, but are right. you looking also for other factors in the lease? Sure. I mean, we, we want to see that every part of the, the safe harbor is, is complied with. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the terms of the lease become important. Um, the, the schedules based, you know, the, the use of the facility, if it's a facility or premises, the, the, uh, the use of the equipment, if it's, if it's equipment involved. You know, there, there are specific factors that are very clearly spelled out in the, uh, the safe harbor for space rental and equipment rental. And so we, we want to see all parts of the lease that are going to impact those factors will be, um, be looked at. I should say when, when we look at fair market value, the, the we in that, uh, it will involve experts. And so we're not, I'm not a valuation expert, um, I'm a litigator. So, so we, are, we do rely heavily on, on, um, on third party experts when we conduct these analyses. Who typically do you hire to do, I mean, are you looking at um, appraisal experts to perform these types of valuations for leases? Yeah, we, we want people that are well respected in the industry as with any expert, um, you know, they have to stand up in court, they gotta uh, survive a Daubert challenge, and and so so we want we want folks who are uh, who are legit. Okay, Justin, I love litigating. 
what I think I was born to do, and you keep mentioning that you're a litigator. So you also mentioned that these cases settle a lot. How many do you actually take to trial? Not as many as I personally would like to take to trial. Yes. <laughs> That's always, but, but I'm sure far, far too many than your clients would want to take to trial. <laughs> um, I agree. No, I, I, a False Claims Act trial is, is very rare. Uh, you will read about every single one of them on Law 360. Right. Um, and everyone will be aware of them when they happen. Uh, I, I cannot recall um, last time a healthcare fraud, a civil healthcare fraud trial happened in our district. So it's, it's, it's very rare. Uh, but it does happen, and, and it, it, it can happen. And if they happen in the Northern District, do you help out there, or do they not happen there either? I, I really don't know. I didn't, I didn't call uh, Wayne Alt, who's the uh, AUSA counterpart in the Northern District, uh, to get that number. But <laughs> Are there any compliance actions which you're unwilling to settle? Let's say you have a particularly egregious uh, lease. Um, that you know, as you the fact had the factors that you're looking for in charges decisions with, um, or uh, charges decisions for a civil action versus patient with patient harm and the intentionality of the action. Sure, there's unwilling to settle. You know, it, it just comes down to do we agree on the number and does the number reflect the egregiousness of the violation? And if if our office and the other stakeholders involved in the federal government are are not convinced that the number. Is what it should be. Then, then that's that's how a civil complaint gets filed. It's if, if we can't agree on the number. So basically, if, if complaint is unsealed, and we've intervened, it's very a safe assumption to say that we we uh, were unwilling to settle for the amount that was offered. Um. So you've been with the office for how long? I started pretty recently, uh, earlier this year. So I am fairly new to this office. And can, before I see that we have some questions, before we ask those questions really quick, can you describe the most notable case you've handled? I cannot, because- Because you're they're limited. Stu- they're still under seal. <laughs> oh, okay. So any that you've handled that have been unsealed, can you describe anything for us that you were just like right. wowed from? I, I don't think we have any cases in our office that are unsealed. Oh wow! Um, right now, um, I, th- I think that's accurate. Okay. Like I said, this I said before this this ebbs and flows. Right. I mean, it, it changes as um, you know for for a variety of reasons. And they can stay sealed for six to five years or six months to five years. Right. Or or they've settled while remaining under seal okay. and, and that sort of thing. I I, I want to get away from this five to six years. Don't 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 <laughs> repeat this five to six. That's we don't want cases to last that long. It's, no, I yeah. I agree. I agree. It's just. It's nice to hear. Um, I know some of the listeners would probably feel a little bit better. I, I, I'm fine in waiting. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. most litigators are, but right. non-litigators right. get a and, little antsy. And, and I would think your clients, they, they should not know whether, if, if they know there's an investigation, they should not know whether the investigation is a key TAM or a referral from our agency. Okay. Um, if they know it's a key TAM, it won't be because we said anything. Um, okay. We are as it's under seal means it's it's under seal. We can't confirm or deny one way or another its existence. That's what it means to be under seal. So you know I understand that can be uncomfortable and, and the the ambiguity of it all can 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 be unsettling. Um, yes. But but it is what it is. Um, Lori mentioned we have a few questions and one of them deals with uh, the timeliness of a fair market valuation. So if, if, how much weight do you give the timeliness of an appraisal or a broker opinion of value in establishing the fair market value of the proposed leasing arrangement? Sure. Well, I really can't say for sure. I would 
it will depend on the terms of the lease. There, there's just so many factors. I, I best advice um, personally I would give is is just what's what would you do if this were not a healthcare, if this lease did not involve healthcare, did not involve anything related to doctors. What what would you do under the normal business operations? Uh, there's no that that's all that's the language of the statute and that's the legal test that we're looking to deal with and so there are valuation experts who are much more qualified to understand what that statute means in the context of your particular practice your particular region um, and your particular lease and so with appraisals um, in cases where they're a um, a hospital or a leasing arrangement that's under investigation for possibly fair market value issues um, if appraisal has been obtained, will you obtain, we will also obtain a third-party expert to review that appraisal. Yes. And what weight do you give um, an appraisal that is received by um, a party under investigation? Yeah. In, in my experience, we, we always get a third party to weigh in. If, if it gets to the point where we are investigating the, the fair market value, we need that third-party opinion. Now, that said, you know, just to be perfectly frank, we're not assuming that every appraisal or assessment that the target has received before the investigation started is automatically a sham. Uh, quite to the contrary, we, we, we assume that uh, whatever due diligence they did uh, before entering the lease is, is legitimate. Uh, but we, we want to know two things. How does that appraisal fit with, with our third party opinion? And second, what were, the, what were the facts and the assumptions that the target fed to um, their own appraiser or their own uh, valuation expert. And uh, I've seen cases where we have reason to suspect that the the assumptions that the target fed to um, their own appraiser were false or were misleading. And so in that situation, it's not the initial appraiser's fault that they may have come up with a figure that doesn't match what our experts said. It's It's a function of them having the wrong information. So we want to look at both angles of it. What, what did their, what did the target's appraiser know? What were the assumptions they were operating under when they made their assessment? One, and then, and then how does their conclusion, assuming that they did get the right information, fit with um, our independent expert? You mentioned doing due diligence um, and believe, you know, assuming that it's legitimate, the, uh, the work that parties will do before signing a lease. Um, do you give more deference or more weight or look at as more legitimate an appraisal versus a broker opinion of value? Or are you looking just for some type of uh, support for the fair market value valuation? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, these are these are complicated cases that, that do turn on in, uh, the intent of the parties. And so, again, back to industry standard, what, what would, what would um, your clients do uh, if this were in the normal course of business, if they were trying to be above board? And that's what we'd want to see as well. Um, I don't think it's cookie cutter. Um, we, we just want to see what did the target do um, to try to, in good faith, assure that what they were doing was, was above board and, and complied with the law. So we had another question um, in regards to HHS's launching um, the regulatory sprint to coordinated care. Do you think that the current safe harbors and exceptions under AKS, AKS and Stark are sufficient to allow for coordinated care models? Sadly, I am I am not familiar with um, with this initiative. Um, so so with that with that qualifier, I, I can't fully answer the question. But but I will say, um, and th this is purely my you know 
again, personal capacity, I, I, it's stepping back, looking at the healthcare industry from a 30,000 foot view, I, I can appreciate, I think, the assumption in this question that trying to do what is best for the patient can sometimes seem like it's at odds with the spirit of the regulations. Co- healthcare is extremely complicated in this country. Uh, we understand that, and and we understand that often greater coordination, greater sharing of resources, uh, is in some cases in the patient's best interest. However, where there's increased coordination, increased information sharing, increased efficiencies, that the solutions that your clients come up with uh, may not comply with the safe harbors. So. All that to say, I think our office and I certainly appreciate that that tension that arises. At the end of the day, I think the purpose of these statutes is to do the best that Congress can in recognizing some low-hanging fruit that, by any standard, is not going to harm patients, is not going to waste government resources. But as healthcare evolves, it can expose maybe some things that the regulation doesn't take account of, and and I think that's probably the spirit behind the regulatory sprint that uh, CMS is is engaged in. So that's my attitude, I think, to that general landscape that you see, which I, which I don't think is com- uh, exclusive to healthcare. I think any highly regulated industry is going to have the same types of tensions as the industry evolves and develops, presumably in an attempt to, to satisfy consumers and, and be for the good of the public. There's always going to be tension with, with whether what's best for the patient is really accounted for by the regulations. So that said, as an employee of a law enforcement agency, essentially, uh, we have to go with what the statute says. And so I, w- I would think that CMS uh, is, is aware of these things as well. And if you ever get them on one of these webinars, you know, they can, they can, say, they can say more. So in your time at the AUSA's office, I'm sure you've dealt with um, some defendants or um, some potential defendants that you are like, oh my gosh, if you just would have done X, it would have been fine. What is X? What do you suggest to providers, to physicians, to entities that would maybe save you some time and them some yeah. time? I would say listen to your general counsel. Uh, <laughs> can you say that one more time? Listen to your general counsel, that's right. So I, I, I'm sure your clients can relate um, you have a case where the business side of the of the of the brain of the client, so to speak, has a great solution to increase revenue and increase patient demand and, and meet all sorts of, of good good needs that make complete business sense. They say, Oh yeah, we gotta get legal involved. Hey legal, what do you think? And then legal puts the kibosh on it all and then and then the CEO plows forward and, and then five years later we're deposing the CEO and, and saying, Hey, you got this email from your general counsel that said why did, you know, we can't do this. We got to change some things. And you replied, who cares? <laughs> oh, uh, I, I, I would say that you don't, you don't want that. So, right. so if, if there's anything, it's just, um, I think most physician groups, hospitals, um, medical providers in Indiana are, are, are very sophisticated and very, very thoughtful. And they, and I know the general counsels and those, and those organizations want to do what's right. And so that's good for us. That's good for our state. That's good for um, Treasury. I would hope that your clients just listen to their their uh, their, their GCs and uh, their attorneys. Yeah. They... <laughs> well, Justin, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and uh, sharing your insight on this issue. Um, if there's any questions you have that weren't addressed today um, to, to our uh, webinar participants, feel free to email 
me at Addison at abradford at hallrender.com or Lauren at lrodriguez at hallrender.com. Um, as mentioned earlier, we do have additional healthcare compliance, uh, healthcare compliance resources related to real estate with our newsletter and podcast, which we'd be happy to share. We thank you all for joining today and appreciate your time. Mm-hmm.